this common reality that what is assumed in one generation is lost in the next generation. And even generation there may not really be the living generation. It may be what is assumed in the first few years of ministry is forgotten in the later few years of ministry. Because there are all these pressures that say to us from one way or another, the text itself is not enough. Look somewhere else for that power of attraction. What will draw the people? What will hold their attention? I'm reminded when I was in class in seminary and Grant Osborne was telling a story. And he mentioned a, a student a year or two before in the preaching class. Um, the professor, listen, he gave his sermon and the professor said to him, that was, a, that was very compelling. That was easy to listen to. You're a really good communicator. And then he wanted to give a criticism, but try to do it gently. So he said, I really just have one main critique, and that is that you never really use the Bible. To which the student replied, he was pastoring at the time down the road, you just don't understand. That's not what my people want. And Dr. Osborne said, I hope he failed him kind of do too. As if it really mattered at the end of the day what people around us say that they want. We come as heralds of God, under obligation to God. And on the final day, we will stand before Him and there will be no voice saying, but Lord, they want it. It will only be the Lord to whom we answer. And He will want to know how faithful we have been to the text. We must stick with the text. We will know that there will be times when we will feel dull to the text. Specific text, any certain text, but we must stay there. We see the results of not doing this in the liberal mainline churches, but you can also see an earlier stage of this in many of our evangelical churches. It hasn't gone to seed yet, but it will. Where our sermons are based more on three steps to a better life instead of what does the text here say to us, which will, in fact, lead to better living, but it begins with God and His Word. Just the other day, my wife, who's here, was uh, reading to uh, our little girl, and uh, oh, it was a little boy, I forget who it was, one of them, and they had this toy right there listening and, and playing, and, and they had this little toy man, and uh, they put it down over the text she was reading. And she said, uh, I, I can't, I can't see the words because there's a man in the way. See, they were just talking, but I was thinking about this conference, and I thought, oh, there's a picture. We must not be those people, as we handle the word, who make it so that the congregation can't see the text because there's a man in the way. We must come to the scriptures seeking God, and then God will speak to man. We must have that approach. We need to be aware that in those times when we think that what we really need is something a little more flashy and the word is not enough, we must confront the, truths, uh, the true errors that are going on in our minds and hearts. It's unbelief. Because God has said His word is powerful and we're tempted not to believe it. It's arrogance. Because we're tempted to believe that we know better than God what our people need. It's oftentimes... Love of the praise of man. 
because we want the applause, whether it's clapping or smiling, whatever it is, of man rather than the favor of God. We must stick with the text. Now, if I can borrow the language of Hebrews 6, even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of better things. We need to lay that groundwork. This is the key thing. Stick with the text. And we need to be clear that even though there are those times when we may feel dull to the Word, the Word is never dull, but we may often be. We are not here today to talk about how to enliven the Scriptures. The Scriptures are alive. We will discuss ways of how to enliven ourselves. The Word is not in need of being freshened up. but We need to pay close attention to it So let me just mention, again, getting us started, some passages you know. Let me read them to us afresh of thinking, reminding ourselves that as we engage in the task of preaching, we need to be convinced of the power of the Word of God. You know the text in Hebrews 4. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or 2 Timothy 3.15. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or James 1, where he mentions in humility that you receive the word implanted, which is able, could even be translated, which is powerful to save your souls. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. For all those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then also, Acts 20. Paul getting ready to leave the Ephesian pastors there. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We can use some discussion about how to focus our minds and how to clarify our minds and how to enliven ourselves, but let us be very clear. The Word has all the power we could ever need. And if we face a time when we've looked at the Scriptures, we've wrestled with it, and and we have the Scriptures in front of us, and yet we're tempted to think it's not enough, And that's all I have. I'd like a few more things. Go ahead, brothers, and stand before your people and give them the word of God in faith because his word will not return again void. It is powerful. Now, that's the first point. We're sticking with the text, though. We can do some things probably better in our work, differently in our work, to help us with it. So my second point is another really fancy point. Dig deeper and look closer. Since we're sticking with the text, we we need to wrestle with it real well. There's this tendency just to kind of skim across it. And it's, it's not hard early on to skim across and find plenty of things to pick up. But after you've gone across one time and you've picked all the low hanging fruit, you need a ladder to find some more. Or the picture that primarily came to my mind was Easter egg hunts. You come to the Easter egg hunt, and there are these little eggs. Now they're always plastic, right, with stuff in them. Um, they're out there, and you can look out, and there's plenty all around. So the first thing the kids do is they run across, 
pick up all the easy ones. But then after you picked up all the easy ones, now you've got to look. You've got to move some grass, you've got to move some sticks and stones and all these kind of things. And now you've got to look hard. And really, the ones with the good prizes in them are the ones you have to dig a little harder for. There is an analogy there for our study of the Scriptures. It may be easy to roll along at first, but we need to be digging deep. We don't need to be those pastors who have skimmed through and gotten a certain number of sermons And that's what we have to give. And when we're finished giving those, we have to find another place to give those. We need to be the people who are skilled in the Word of God. And when I say skilled, I'm not referring to the diplomas on your wall. Now, I like for people to get diplomas on their wall. That helps what I do. But that's not simply it. But it is a lifetime living with and in the Word of God. This is where we will draw these things out. Think of Psalm 1 again. The picture there is of life in general, so it has many applications. But it is ripe with application to the role of teaching and preaching the Word of God. Hear it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Now, this is not a promise for the Joel Osteen kind of ministry when it says all that he does prospers, but this is the statement about how do I keep a fresh teaching ministry. That sounds like a fresh life right there. Its leaf doesn't wither. Why is it? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, as opposed to plenty of the things that could be seen there in Palestine. A tree or some kind of plant away from any water source. It's going to be weak, frail. It won't live long. Instead, this person is like one who has his roots down deep with a ready water supply. What is the reality of that image? It's what's in the first few verses. The one who meditates day and night and delights in the law of the Lord. As we do that, we put our roots down deep and there will be always something to come out, worth coming out. I am not saying that if you ever struggle with preaching, that means you don't love God's Word. No, we're going to struggle with preaching for all kinds of reasons, good and bad. Because we're fallen. But the chief remedy we have is the Word of God. And to sink our roots down deep into that, that we were readily being nourished and trained. So Paul says to Timothy, for him to be nourished in the good words of the faith, and therefore he will show himself to be a faithful minister. Or the words of Jesus. In Matthew 13, 52, Therefore, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Probably you've heard that verse in various settings. Many, many of the older books on pastoral ministry and preaching use that image again and again and again. As one who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven, a scribe, somebody who handles the scriptures, but trained in the kingdom of heaven, not simply the old covenant, 
then this one is able to bring out of the treasures both old and new. Always truth to bring out because having been invested in the word of God, there is a treasure house of truth to share. Now that's not real fancy. I do think those are our two key preliminaries. Stick with the text. Don't run off with other things. And with that text, dig deep and look close. Now the rest of what I'm going to mention is actually specific ways of digging deeper and looking closer. I'm suggesting to us that, to use the image of uh, digging, that in our plot here, we need to sharpen our tools. Maybe work our muscles a little bit and pick up our pickaxe again. So I want to open up the tool shed. We're not going around back. The Lord will do that if he needs to. But open up the tool shed and look at a few of the tools and encourage you in them. So... Here's the first tool, or my third point. Biblical languages. Now, I pause here for the groan, or the eyes rolling. People looking at Charles and going, way to go, Charles. This is what happens when you bring a professor up here. He's going to start saying this stuff. Next thing you know, he's going to be advertising for classes. Charles will do that. Um, This is what you get when you invite a professor here we go. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Here it is. It's true, I'm a professor. I am, first of all, though, a preacher of the gospel. In fact, it was kind of fun. A few years ago, a colleague um, came. I was speaking at some student event. It was brief. And, and he was going to be complimentary. This colleague, and he said, uh, I think there's a preacher down there somewhere. And I said, Oh, brother, I sure hope so. Because I think that's what's at the core of my being. I work as a professor as part of the outworking of the proclamation of the gospel. So, I want to urge upon you the use of the biblical languages. I'm not saying you can't preach the Bible without it. I'm not saying you're less godly if you can't parse as many verbs or anything like that. I am saying this is a big tool in the tool shed. And to whatever degree you can use it, use it. And don't simply look at the tool and say, that looks big. I'm scared of that tool. Pick it up and use it. And learn to use it as much as you can. You may have opportunity to learn this much to use it. You may have opportunity to learn this much. But we have a wealth of resources at our hands. We need to make use of them. Maybe you know the story of John Brown of Haddington, who ended up to be one of the foremost of the Scottish preachers of his day. And there were a lot of great ones how he taught himself Greek while he watched the sheep on the hillside, having used a text that somebody was letting him borrow because he was so earnest to be able to handle the Word of God. And according to the stories, someone saw him nosing about in a bookstore and uh, offered to give him this Greek text if he could show that he could read it. And so he opened it and began to read it, and they were so shocked because he had been to school. They all thought about charging him uh, for witchcraft because of the ability of reading. And some might even say it requires witchcraft to be able to handle the biblical languages. That's not true. Now, I also want to just to establish, this is not simply my opinion. So I want to give you a few quotes. One from a modern-day pastor. It says, A careful listening to the original text has a way of breaking the ice in my encounter with the text. It is precisely because the English Bible is so familiar to me 
that I tend to be insensitive to what is there. The original text clarifies these things for me, leading me into fresh insight and challenging my own whimsical notions. When this happens, the clouds part and I meet God. I listen to God. I commune with God. I begin to see reality from his perspective rather than from my own intuitive perspective. And I long for others to join me there in that holy place before God. What could be more exciting and full of potential for good? I think that sounds like communicating familiar Bible stories in an unfamiliar way. Or, in the past, Martin Luther, who, if anything, had a fruitful and fresh ministry. He said... We will not preserve the gospel without the biblical languages. Preaching is sluggish and weak, and the people finally become weary and fall away without the languages. But a knowledge of the biblical languages renders it lively and strong, and faith finds itself constantly renewed through rich and varied instruction. I could mention some others, but we might say, okay, that's fine, but I mean, life is busy today. We've got a lot of things we're doing. It's fine for an academic. You live in ivory tower, ivory tower and you can do that kind of thing. But, you know, you might be involved in, in um, everyday ministry and social ministry and meeting the needs of the community, like maybe people who run orphanages and uh, live by faith for their provision, like George Mueller, who said, I know studies much, about 12 hours a day, chiefly Hebrew, And committed portions of the Hebrew Old Testament to memory. And this I did with prayer, often falling on my knees. I looked up to the Lord even while turning over the leaves of my Hebrew dictionary. That's a busy man. Or, you know, study's good, but I mean, I want to be, I want to see people converted. I'm involved in taking the gospel to people in all kinds of places and doing the work of evangelism. We might should hear from George Whitfield, not a slouch of an evangelist himself. Though weak, I often spent two hours in my evening retirements in prayer over my Greek Testament and Bishop Hall's most excellent contemplations every hour that my health would permit. It's also interesting to take Wesley, who said very similar things. I've got plenty here. John Newton as well. Uh, Newton has this wonderful quote when he talks about wrestling with the languages. He's writing to another brother and he says, Now, you you must not think that I have a, a proficiency in the languages. You must not think that I've ever even aimed at that. I'm simply just using, my language, the tools to the best I can. And then when he tells you what that was, it's uh, fairly convicting. But nonetheless, the aim isn't notoriety or what somebody might consider proficiency necessarily. The aim is simply to take the tool and use it as best we can. And it is true. The goal is not to to find some way to overturn all the standard translations. That's probably not going to happen. But the goal is just to encounter the text freshly. And it is the fact that it slows you down oftentimes and speaks in language a little different. You, you, You see a little different than what you're used to seeing in whatever translation you use. This is true in different languages in general. I'm reminded again of a day at the seminary, Gleason Archer who was an emeritus prof there. Maybe you know his name, seen some of his books. He was retired by this time. It was a day of prayer that we would have um, once a quarter. And people would, times of prayer, people sharing testimonies. And Dr. Archer, uh, quite old at the time, came forward and he was going to share a testimony about his own Bible reading that morning. And very much unaware of himself, said, 
Brothers, I was struck by the scriptures this morning as I read it. I was doing my devotions this morning in Icelandic. And my Icelandic is just so poor. I had to be looking up a lot of words. And as I did, looking at it more slowly than normal, this jumped out to me. And he had a great point, but most of us were thinking, is Icelandic a language? My point is not to learn Icelandic. But again, that's something that causes us to pay closer attention. is always helpful. An example from my own life. When uh, we lived in Scotland for three years, that's where I was doing my doctoral work, and uh, I would either ride my bike into the university or uh, ride the bus. And so one day I was riding the bus, and I had this devotional book, which had a reading from uh, uh, Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament. I was looking at this one verse, nothing big. I mean, that's not impressive. One verse, and it's got helps at the bottom. And I was looking at it. It's First Peter 5. And I've memorized 1 Peter 5, 7 and quoted it, I don't know how many times. But I was looking there, here really at just two words. And I looked at it. How do I translate that? He cares for me. And it hit me with a power and a freshness beyond anything I'd ever seen before. If you had walked up to me two minutes before and said, God cares for you, I'd have said, yes, I know that. Thank you. Reading his word and being caused to pause there. And there in a public transport in Aberdeen, Scotland, God the Father Almighty speaking through his word and shaping my heart and challenging me and encouraging me. Well, I encourage you to use that tool. Another tool, and my fourth point, is background study. But I'm just going to mention that because Dr. Thornberry is going to take that up in the following session. So the fifth one, identify with the text. What I mean by that is get into it. Put yourself there. Realize these are real people with real needs and real fears. It's for those of us who have grown up with the Bible, that is a great blessing, but every blessing has its potential challenge. And that challenge is that we're just so accustomed to them, we can skate right by them. We come to David and Goliath. We have a pretty good hunch that David's going to win. He did last time we read it. He's likely to win this time when we read it. So we're not surprised. And somebody says, hey, the small guy killed the giant. And we're like, yes, that's what they do. But that's not what they do. David had never read that story before. So we ought to put ourselves there and consider this. What would this be like? Well, what does this sound like to his brothers? We, we can be a bit haughty, giving his brothers a hard time, and they get all mad at him. Well, think if you were the brother. And the, the kid comes up. And you have looked at the military issues as closely as you can. You've looked at it. It looks hopeless, and you're scared. And the kid shows up and says, why don't you kill him? I mean, haven't you been there in one sense or another? Maybe as pastors, you have somebody come into your office every once in a while and say, well, why don't you fix everything? And you want to say, come on around this side, won't you just show me how? <laughs> Only in this case, that's exactly what they say to David, and he does. But we've got to put ourselves in that place. And when you do with that story, then you begin to see, right, the giant is so big that the people can't see God. But for David... God is so big, he can't be afraid of the giant. 
Where has he come from? Out with a sheep. What is he doing there? Communing with God. Now all of a sudden this familiar text, there's a lot to it. There are many examples of this. One of my favorite uh, is the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. And we know that text. We've seen Charlton Heston do it as well. So this is just common. We know what's going to happen. But again, we need to remind ourselves and remind our people, right? They have never read this story, the people who were there. They don't know that God might part the water. It hasn't crossed their minds. But again, I think we tend to read, don't we? They're on a journey, and they got stuck, and they found a way. I remember this one time, I was traveling, and my GPS sent me the wrong way, and we got stuck, and then we found directions, and we made it home. It's kind of the same thing. Not quite. We need to put ourselves there for a moment. And perhaps imagine you're an Israelite man. You've just been through the Passover. Moses came, remember, and they weren't all excited about him. Life got hard. But now God has moved, and you've seen the power of God in these plagues. And now Pharaoh has said you can leave, and it's, it's celebration time, and you're bringing your children out. We're going to be out of this. We're going to be free. We're going to that land I've always heard about but never seen. We're going there. It's happening. It's real. We're here. And then, wait a minute. We don't have any boats. The Israelites were never a seafaring people. We're stuck. And here come the Egyptians. The world superpower of the day. With the latest technological weapons bearing down on us. What do we have? Got a couple sticks. Great. So what's about to happen to us? Again, they're not going to come down and slap us on our wrists and say, go back. They're about to descend upon us and annihilate us. They're going to kill every one of the men that they want to. They may keep a few for some slaves. They're going to take our children. Who knows what they're going to do to them? At best, they're going to grow up as Egyptians with no knowledge of the covenant of God and no awareness of what he has done. We don't even want to talk about what they're going to do to our wives. This is where they are. And so when they complain at Moses, I think we might hear it with a little more sympathy. They're not right, and neither would we be. But I think we might feel conviction rather than condescension as we read it. And then we hear Moses say to them, Stand still and see the salvation of your God. Which is a powerful statement, but maybe it's heard by them and going, Yeah, right, what else am I going to do? Hey, everybody watch. Moses is going to lift his stick over the water. Great! And then all of a sudden, the waters part. He stacks up. And there's dry land underneath it. And the Lord puts an obstruction in the way of the Egyptians. And they walk through. What was it like to walk through? I've just sit and pondered this sometimes, especially with my children now. What do you do? I can imagine several of mine want to stick their finger in it, kind of run along, you know, does it leak or anything? This is impressive. When you get to the other side, the Egyptians begin to come. And there are some in our midst, maybe us, maybe some in your churches, who as soon as we get to the other side and the Egyptians start to come through, we go, well, see there, wasn't that great? Great trick, but we're just going to die on this side of the water. Great, at least I get to die outside the country. That's what I've always wanted. Then the waters crash. And the world superpower is decimated before God, and we haven't lifted a finger. And the text yells at us, salvation is by grace alone, 
God will redeem his people. It will look like at times that the world is great and mighty and will destroy us, but God reigns and he will redeem his people. Familiar stories, all we have to do is just pay attention to them and read them. I don't have time to mention some others. I would mention some things about some of the Christmas stories, but I want to move to another point, my sixth one. Theology. If we want to preach the Bible well and remain fresh, we've got to see that the Bible is a unified story. For too long, Baptists have pushed aside systematic theology and said, we just want to see what's in the text. Well, then you better pay attention to systematic theology because it's in the text. We have to see how this story all fits together. Otherwise, all we give to our people are little bits and pieces, which typically then reduces down to a few moralisms. Be nice and be good and don't do this and don't do that. But we don't have the powerful grand narrative. And this is what we're crying out for. Tell me, tell me what the story is and where is my place in it? What is that big picture that can shape my life? And yet many of our people, many of the students that show up in our classes, they know that they don't need to have sex outside of marriage. They know that it would be a good thing to go on a mission trip. They know they don't need to do drugs. There's some other things like that. But they aren't real clear on how the Bible teaches it and what the grand story is. We need the big picture. In fact, this is one of the key things that will help us to preach, for example, the Christmas stories. Because we begin to see that we're not just preaching stories or isolated events, but part of the grand story of God. And here, I want to read you an excerpt. Now, I know homiletically you're not really supposed to do this, but I'm about to do it. Because I halfway wondered, maybe we'd be better off if I just took my full time to read out of this great old book, Heralds of God, by James Stewart. Now, I believe he did have a wonderful life, but it's not that James Stewart. But the Scottish preacher, who was the chief of the preachers in his day, In the chapter called The Preacher's Theme, he hammers this point about the value of doctrinal preaching. By which he doesn't mean just a doctrinal topic, but looking at the Bible and seeing that there are doctrines there and that the gospel is at the center of it. Here's what he writes. Surely it is a great thing to realize that just as the early church knew itself commissioned for something far more vital and incisive than vague talk about topical problems far more dynamic and explosive than the propagating of interesting ideas or the fostering of a new type of piety. All those sound familiar. So you are being sent forth today to thrust God upon men, to announce that in the fact of Christ, God has bridged the gulf between two worlds, has shattered the massive tyranny of the powers of darkness, has changed radically and forever the human prospect and total aspect of the world and brought life and immortality to light. Here is no academic speculation or cold, insipid moralizing. Here is no dull collection of views and impressions, schemes and theories. Here is a gospel able to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim deliverance to the captives, and bid a distracted world stand still and see the glory of the coming of the Lord. How foolish, then, the clamor for non-doctrinal preaching. And how desperately you will impoverish your ministry if you yield to that demand. The underlying assumption is, of course, that doctrine is dull. 
a perfectly absurd misapprehension. It is indeed lamentably true that the sublimest doctrine can be treated in a way that will reduce the average congregation to leaden apathy and boredom. However, or no, he's continuing, there is a formal type of preaching which all too successfully clips the wings of wonder and unweaves the rainbow arch of the salvation of God. But to maintain that doctrine as such is necessarily a dull affair is simply a confession of ignorance or downright spiritual deficiency. Only a crass blindness could fail to see that such a truth as that presented in the sentence, the word was made flesh, is overpoweringly dramatic in itself and utterly revolutionary in its consequences. If this is dull, exclaims Dorothy Sayers, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? This, I believe, is the true answer to the anxiety which haunts many a young minister at the outset of his work. The anxiety, lest he may exhaust the subject matter of the faith he has to preach long before his course is run. Take comfort. Enshrined at the heart of the faith are facts of such perennial vitality and incalculable force that you will never to your dying day tell more than a fraction of the truth that God has blazed across your sky. We preach always Him, declared Luther, the true God and man. This may seem a limited and monotonous subject, likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at the end of it. Why should you imagine that the stimulating atmosphere of expectation which surrounds you at the opening of your ministry must inevitably give way sooner or later to a sultry air of tedious disenchantment. Drop dogma from your preaching, and for a brief time you may titillate the fancy of the superficial and have them talking about your cleverness. But that type of ministry wears out speedily and garners no spiritual harvest in the end. Therefore, settle it with your own souls now that whatever else you may do or leave undone, you will preach in season and out of season God's redemptive deed in Christ. This is the one inexhaustible theme. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, writes Dorothy Sayers again, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. I am not counseling you to keep harping on one string for variety is the breath of life in preaching. I am insisting on what is paradoxical but true, that the more resolutely and stubbornly you refuse to be deflected from the one decisive theme, the greater the variety you will achieve. While the more you seek variety by wandering from your center, the faster the descent to bathos and monotony. God's deed in Christ touches life at every point. It speaks to every aspect of the human predicament. It stretches all horizons illimitably. It bursts through the narrow orbit of habitual thought forms, hackneyed social attitudes, doctrinal predilections. There is no plummet that can sound this ocean's depth, no yardstick that can measure the length and breadth of this Jerusalem, and the surest way to keep your ministry living and vigorous and immune from the blight of spiritual lassitude and drudgery is to draw continually upon the unsearchable riches which in Christian doctrine are lying at your hand. And to remember that you, no less than the New Testament preachers, are commissioned for the purpose of kerygma, the proclamation of news, the heralding 
of the wonderful works of God. I think Brother Stewart is right. We need to see how all this comes together. If we preach Christmas, for example, as a neat story year after year, it will be dull and it ought to be. But if we will remember that in Christmas we are preaching the doctrine of the Incarnation, and in Easter we are preaching the doctrine of the Resurrection, now all of a sudden these are powerful truths, and they're not limited to Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. You find this all over the, the Scriptures. You might preach Philippians 2 as a Christmas sermon where it mentions that Jesus had this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. Or Hebrews chapter 2, a passage I've had the fun to preach a time or two for Christmas. Partially the fun because it surprises people. They've already turned to Matthew and Luke and you turn somewhere else. But this, this is all over the scriptures, but here's just one, Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, likewise partook of the same things, incarnation, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christmas, the purpose of Christmas, the destruction of the devil and new life. We can see this and when we can see how the whole Bible points to Christ. That pick your passage and preach Christ. We were having a series through First and Second Samuel one year and it was going to go through Christmas. The guy setting out the schedule simply said it so that Second Samuel 7 came on the Sunday nearest Christmas. That's where David gets the promise that God will build him a house and he will have a son always to sit on the throne. Powerful Christmas story there because there's the promise that Bethlehem would happen. Or 2 Kings 11. You really throw them for a loop here. I don't have the time to read the text. This is where Athaliah becomes queen because the king dies and she sets out to kill all the children. And then one, one uh, child is rescued and he becomes king. Three verses, all it's mentioned. What is this? A lot of things. One of them, Christmas. Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel. The strain of Jezebel having infected the southern kingdom. She, it says, because of her, her husband walked in wickedness. Because of her, her son walked in wickedness. And when they all died, she rose up. The power of Satan himself to destroy the seed. What's going on there? If all of them are killed, it's not just like, oh, well, we've got to have another king in the southern kingdom. No, if they're all killed, the promise of God dies. Second Samuel 7 is a lie. There'll be no Christmas. But God is at work. And even one of the offspring of the strain of Jezebel, God has moved and changed her heart. And she rescues the young king who is then the forebear of the Messiah. Christmas is everywhere because the incarnation is everywhere. And when we see that, all of a sudden, the Bible is alive with possibilities. Brothers, if we want to preach lively, freshly, in the proper understanding of the word, we just need to pay real good attention to the living word of God. And see it as a full story and preach the great doctrines of the Bible and God will bless it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that is living and active. Thank you that you have not sent us with an inferior tool. 
you've given us this powerful word. May we be faithful to it. And Lord, we are dull and sluggish so many times. So help us. Enliven us to your word that we might rejoice in you and that your church might benefit as a result. In Jesus' name.